Hello and welcome to this episode of the Sorbonne Messer podcast with me, your host, Alan McGuire. When you first move to Spain, you soon find out that it's more than just left and right or extreme left and extreme right. You also find out there's regional politics as well. Um, so if, if you're lucky enough to move to the Basque Country, Catalonia, even Galicia or Andalusia, uh, some places that have um, high numbers of regional parties, you will find that there are too many parties to even try and name um, and it is a complete baptism of fire into, into Spanish politics, uh, trying to tell you the difference between all the left and the right. Um, they're both as bad as one another for splitting off and creating new parties. And often in the media, this is highlighted with Catalonia, as has been in recent years. But regional politics or territorial politics does have a long history um, in the Spanish state. And today with me, I have um, Caroline Gray. She is a lecturer of politics and Spanish at Aston University in Birmingham. And uh, she has recently published her book, Territorial Politics and the Party System, Continuity and Change Since the Financial Crisis. Um, so Caroline, welcome to Sobre Mesa. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I just wanted to say as well, Caroline's book is an academic book. So if you go on any book website after this and see her book, um, you should go and get your library or your, your university library to, to um, buy a copy so that everybody in your university can, um, can share it because, well, yes, thanks for coming, Caroline. So uh, how, did you, how did you decide <laughs> to write a book on territorial Spanish politics, which is probably one of the most complicated areas? Uh, anyone that's moved to Spain knows that, or anyone involved in Spanish politics, or even that keeps an eye on it knows that territorial politics in Spain with all the different ADCs and ERC and PNV, uh, it's a bit of a minefield. So what made you take on this, this uh, enormous task of documenting modern Spanish territorial politics? Well, I mean, it's got a, quite a bit of history before the book, really. I mean, before I did a PhD, I worked for a while at the British Embassy in Madrid and also as a financial journalist covering Spain, right at the height of the financial crisis when there were a lot of difficulties with regional financing. And so I got into writing about that then. And then I did my PhD um, back in 2013 to 2016. And for my PhD, I investigated the ways in which the different regional financing systems in Spain had contributed to shaping Basque and Catalan nationalist party agendas. And I spent a lot of time in the Basque country and in Catalonia as part of my PhD interviewing politicians. And I was focused very much on what was happening at the regional level within uh, those regions. But that was, you know, 2013 to 2016. It was the height of the time of the, you know, the aftermath of the financial crisis when new parties were emerging. There was a lot changing at the national level, not just at the regional level. Um, and I became really interested in the extent to which regional politics was shaping national politics in Spain. Mm. Um, I mean, it had done so for a while, but then when we saw such, so much party system restructuring in Spain in general in the aftermath of the financial crisis, um, uh, Spain seemed to stand out in, the, in, in terms of the extent to which like, the regional dimension of politics was, was affecting that. Mm. So that's really the, what got me interested in it. Um, as I say, I started out investigating Basque and Catalan um, politics prior to my PhD, but then for the PhD, I was focused on that. And then I became interested as I was doing the PhD and how that was also shaping national politics mm. in Spain. So, yeah. So for anyone that doesn't know, uh, there are this sort of like two different television channels for politics in Spain. It's uh, you, you've got and I don't think we really have this in the UK and even in the US, really. I mean, you have um, the region, the Comunidad uh, which is like Galicia, Andalusia, Madrid, uh, the Basque Country and Catalonia. And they have their, their own separate parliaments where they're the separate, um, they have certain powers given to them, um, like education. Uh, they raise some of their own taxes, but not a lot, it depends. And each area sort of has different rules, doesn't it? Um, and yeah, so regional politics is like a completely 
it's like two different leagues in, in sport, really. And then you have national politics. So even if there's a, a national election, it doesn't mean that there's going to be regional elections. And if there's regional elections, uh, which there was two recently in, in Galicia and the Basque Country, um, and, you know, they didn't happen at the same time as a national election. So um, uh, one thing that you mentioned to me, uh, Caroline, and, and a big thing that we have going on in Spain at the minute is the... Is the um, is the budget. We haven't had a budget in many years. Um, and in, in our correspondence to organize this interview, you mentioned about you had uh, interviewed quite a few people from Bildu uh, in the Basque Country and several other uh, regional um, political groups that the coalition government, which is a minority coalition government, uh, they're relying on a lot of um, regional governments for their support. And um, so, yeah, what, what did you find in those interviews that, that is sort of informing things, how they're working now? Yes, well, I think, you know, um, interviewing members of um, EH Bildu was was one of the most interesting aspects of the uh, the fieldwork I did back in the Basque Country in 2014, because obviously they were relatively new at that stage because mm. um, Bildu um, uh, entered into politics after ETA's uh, permanent ceasefire and they first won seats at the, the Basque regional elections in 2012. Um, and so then I was doing my interviews in 2014 and bear in mind this was, you know, just before say Podemos had emerged and mm -hmm. um, they were just emerging at European level at that stage, but they hadn't actually emerged in Spanish elections at that stage. Um, and what I found uh, really interesting about some of the interviews I did in, in the Basque country with Bildu was that, you know, there's these, this two sides to them. There's the, obviously the, the radical territorial side that they are um, very pro-independence and they have a, a much more, um, uh, they do have a much more radical vision. I would use the word radical in terms of the future of the Basque country. You know, often when they're talking about the Basque country, they're not just thinking about the Basque autonomous community, the Basque region under Spain's devolved model. They're mm -hmm. also including Navarre. They're also including parts of the southern of southern France, and all of that's in their territorial vision. But then the other side of them, which I think, you know, I hadn't focused on as much myself before I did the interviews, was this this far left anti-capitalist discourse, and wow. that. Uh, that stage when I was interviewing them I hadn't heard that level of anti-capitalism from any other actors in Spain as I say Podemos hadn't yet emerged it was just beginning to emerge um but so there's these two sides to Bildu and and I think you know you mentioned that the the Spanish government uh, the current socialist and um well socialist and Podemos coalition is dependent on support from regionally based parties to be able to govern i mean that's nothing new for spain in no. spain since the 1990s has often had minority governments that have needed support from regionally based parties but what is new is that the current government is looking to say bildu whereas in the past um the, in the past, it had always been uh, either the PP or, or, or the PSOE looking to what were then seen as more moderate nationalist, Basque and Catalan nationalist mm -hmm. parties, you know, if we talk about several years back. Yeah. So there have been some shifts in, the, in, in what's happening, and obviously that's caused quite a lot of controversies and etc. Now, that's, that brings me on to quite an interesting point, actually, because in the, in the first couple of chapters in your book, you sort of lay out the groundwork, you know, where you talk about the minority governments, the PP and the PSOE, you know, the both the two big parties of the big part two party system, both relied on on regional well um, part you know support from uh, regional parties and mainly Catalonia, I believe, and the PNV in in, um, in the Basque Country. And one thing that you you talked about that was quite interesting um, for me was the the change in the. CDC. I cannot remember what uh, it stands for now, but it's the Convergencia Democrática de Catalunya. Yeah, Sorry. and their change <laughs> from being because um, you know, I, I, it sounds like they were more um, similar to the the PNV in the past, which are the for anyone sorry, PNV stands for the Nationalist Party in um, the more sort of center center right, economically center left, socially. Uh, party in the Basque Country, and they're the biggest party in the Basque Country, um, alongside Bildu. It's sort of their their sort of rivals in 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 that area, really. And um, it sounded like the CDC used to be more like them, and then they seemed to like they had this sort of change. 
like to an independent from like being co-governance to being independent is that when things started to change for catalonia well the the evolution of cdc you know that, that was the mainstream nationalist party in the catalan region sort of um it was in part in reaction to, to things that were already happening within Catalonia and in part motivated further changes. So it was a bit of a um, uh, influence things both ways. But yes, as um, back in the, if we think back to, you know, after the transition to democracy, the 1980s, the 1990s, the early 2000s, um, even, you had both in the Basque country and in, in Catalonia, you had these kind of mainstream um, centre-right nationalist parties in, in economic terms. But as you say, in, in Spain, often, if, even if they're centre-right in, in economic terms, they can be sort of centre-left on more on in social, uh, in terms of social legislation. Yeah. Um, uh, those, you had your Basque nationalist party and, and Convergencia CDC um, in Catalonia. They were your centre-right parties who were really... Um, and at that stage, if anything, the Basque it, people expected the Basque Nationalist Party to want to push for more than the Catalans, because under Jordi Pujol, you know, the Convergencia was always looking for a leading role for Catalonia within Spain, rather than looking for independence. Pro-independence mm -hmm. sentiment was very much a minority sentiment in Catalonia at the time. Mm -hmm. But really, we started to see shifts. Um, we started to see shifts early on in the 2000s, well, late 1990s, early 2000s in Catalonia, where you started to have Convergencia facing more regional competition within the region, both from the, the um, Esquerra Republicana, which is the, the left-wing Republicans, mm -hmm. and also from the Catalan Socialists, who are a sort of a federation of your Spanish Socialist Party. So they do have quite a lot of independence. They're still attached to the the... Yeah. the Spanish Socialist Party, but they still have quite a lot of independence. So your your Catalan nationalists, your traditional Catalan nationalists that in the past had won absolute majorities in the Catalan Parliament, stopped managing to do that because they were facing more competition. And so you started to see both more competition amongst parties within Catalonia, which meant led to them perhaps promising more, trying to take different routes to try and win voters. But at the same time, you then had in Spain from 2000 to 2004, you had your first absolute majority conservative government um, mm. of Spain's democratic period, which for the first time you saw during the democratic period, that the, the 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 right wing party in Spain, your Conservative People's Party, trying to recentralize some powers after lots of decentralization over the previous decade or so. So I think the start of the 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 sort of the 21st century is when we started to see some shifts in dynamics within Catalonia that were kind of the origins of what would then later on, um, due to various factors evolving, um, turn into a more full blown independence movement. Yeah. And one of those, I mean, the, I think it's sort of the question you put at the start of the book is, and it's in the it's in the title as well, is about the financial crisis being one of those things, uh, probably the biggest thing. Um, and the difference that you that you sort of you compare the the Basque Country and, and Catalonia is quite interesting. Um, how they responded, and and probably for a lot of Spaniards, it was quite an interesting response as well. So did you want to um, just tell us a bit about that? Yep, yep, definitely. I mean, I think definitely with Catalonia, with the pro-independence movement, I think it was accelerated by the financial crisis. I don't think the financial crisis was the, the original cause of it. There were already, as we've just talked about, there were already dynamics in motion before then. And, you know, also some things happened to coincide, such as, you know, the, the, the constitutional um, courts ruling against various aspects of the new Catalan regional autonomy statute, all the debates over whether Catalonia could be recognised as a nation, um, whether it could have more powers, regional financing powers, all of the, the issues to do with that sort of coincided with the financial crisis. But then the financial crisis served to accelerate tensions. Um, it served to accelerate tensions over the financing model, because there is a big difference between the Basque country and Catalonia in that the Basques and Navarans, for historical reasons, have a lot more tax raising powers than any other region in Spain. Uh -huh. So Catal the, the Catalan region is under the same system as we have have in most of Spain, where they, yes, they have a lot of spending powers. The, gov the regional government has a lot of spending powers, but it has far fewer tax raising powers. Most taxes are still raised by the central government, and then the regions are given a share, and there's quite a lot of redistribution via that system. Yeah. 
And with the whole financial crisis, I mean, you had um, uh, and all the cuts that happened, it meant that, say, um, uh, a region like Catalonia, which was heavily indebted, ended up becoming um, having to to implement more cuts and being under uh, under strict instructions from the Spanish government to do so in order then to meet EU targets, whereas the Basques were in a different position. So there were a lot of dynamics going on with Catalonia, within Catalonia like that, that that contributed to accelerating um, the Catalan pro-independence movement and also more party competition emerging with, for example, uh, the likes of, you know, Podemos um, and, and local equivalents that you had in the Catalan region. Um, but in the Basque country, it was quite different because there, the Basque uh, Nationalist Party um, knew that, I mean, they were in opposition for a while for, for the first time, because um, usually they'd always governed in the Basque region. And then when they came back into power, um, they, they knew that they had to focus on helping the Basque country get through the economic crisis because the, the Basque regional government is, um, well, it's actually the provincial governments in conjunction with the regional government are responsible for collecting most taxes in the Basque region mm. and then for deciding how those taxes are spent. They have more fiscal autonomy than, than, than pretty much any other sub-state level of government within Europe. Mm. Um, and that meant, you know, unlike what was in happening in Catalonia, where, say, your Catalan government could blame Madrid to some extent, rightly, but also sometimes it's a, it's a bit more nuanced than either side presented it, to be yeah. honest, um, could blame Madrid for all the cuts, saying, you know, or if were it not for the problems with all of this recentralization, rationalization, and the financing system, we'd have more money to 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 be able to help Catalonia. Whereas in the Basque region, they couldn't do that. You know, they really because it was the Basque government's responsibility. And, and the the Basque Nationalist Party really did, I mean, they had in the years prior to the financial crisis, there, there'd been an attempt to gain more powers for the region, more sovereignty um, under uh, one of their regional presidents that was Juan José Ibarreche. And that had backfired because it hadn't um, got through, it hadn't been approved fully enough by the, the Spanish um, parliament. But rather than then radicalizing further actually your Basque nationalist party decided hang on we've got to take a step back we've got an economic crisis to deal with this has to be our priority right now mm -hmm. and so almost their territorial ambitions for more power were were put on the back burner even if temporarily they were put more on the back burner yeah sounds like the um the left-wing uh, republicans from catalonia have sort of taken a page from their book actually in recent because they seem to be supporting uh podemos and the PSOE a bit more with the budget and things it's very interesting actually we have seen in the past few years with um you know during all the the, the period of turmoil in the spanish parliament we've had what we've had four elections in spain from 2015 between 2015 and 2009 um, and, and nine, um, 2019 uh, four general elections and lots of changing in governments my, you know minority governments that haven't managed to approve budgets then they've had to call new elections etc etc and but yes, what is actually interesting, looking at what's happened in the past couple of years, what we've seen is almost that um, the, the, the left-wing Republicans in Catalonia have almost become more willing now to try and support governance in Madrid, if it's a left-wing government, mm. than your, uh, what were the centre-right um, nationalists in, in Catalonia who had originally been less radical in the sense of less supportive of independence if we look, say, a decade ago yeah. or whatever. So, so there's some interesting dynamics. I mean, the, the Republican left in Catalonia has always shifted its, I mean, it's always been a, a, a party in favour of Catalan independence, but it has shifted its priorities depending on the moment. For example, if we go back to um, earlier in the, in the, in the 2000s in, in Catalonia, there was a time when the Republican left joined forces in a coalition government with the Catalan Socialists and with the Catalan Greens to govern, and they put their independence goals on the back burner to create a left-wing government in Catalonia. So there are these shifting of priorities. Um, and I think that's it's something we even see, even though people often don't realize it, we even see with Bildu in the Basque country. And I think that was one of the things that if I go look back to 2014, when I did elections in the, sorry, when I did interviews in the Basque country, um, 
back then, you know, I went to interview representatives of EH Bildu thinking that everything they would talk about was, was we need independence for the Basque mm -hmm. country. But actually, some of them in Gipuzkoa, which is the most, the province of, um, of the Basque country where there's the strongest, um, uh, where they have the strongest support, really, but it's also the most left-wing province. They were already talking then about wanting to try and ally with the furthest left of the socialists in the Basque country to try and build left-wing alliances against the Basque Nationalist Party. Mm. And some of them were even saying, well, that's actually what we can achieve now, whereas independence can only be a longer-term goal. So even then, they were thinking about and um, different agendas. And that was back in 2014. But I think now that they've been in power for within the Basque region, I mean, it, obviously, they've... Um, They've not been in power in the regional government as such, but they have won quite a lot of seats um, and have had a role in affecting governance in certain ways. We are seeing that, that these parties, even those that are the most radical separatist parties, do have other agendas as well and do sometimes prioritise those agendas. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's something that you probably wouldn't see in the Spanish media, to be honest, because uh, or hear from anyone other than that member of the party. Because, I mean, Bildu do get a lot of... of um they get called terrorists and and you know they there there are uh, obviously their prior connections to ETA but um but yeah they do they they it doesn't show the other side of Bildu I don't think uh like you said the anti-capitalist part of Bildu rather than the more independentist part um and you talked about shifting priorities um that's quite quite an interesting thing that I want to come on to in a minute but one question I wanted to ask you, it's a bit of a, bit of a strange question, but it's something that I've heard a lot um, in my couple of years in Spain. And that's sort of like this cynic cynicism towards Catalonia's independence drive, which was, you know, just following the referendum in um, 2017. Um, a lot of your average Spaniards that I met, or Madrileños, I should say, not your average Spaniards, but your mad average Madrileños, would kind of cynically say the Catalans just want what the Basque have, which is this sort of financing model that you were, were talking about. Is there any truth to that, or is this just sort of cynical sort of they are burnt out by regional politics? Well, I think, to be honest, you often get from the, if you, you know, when you speak to people in Madrid and you speak to people in Catalonia, you often get very different views. And when I say, you know, in Madrid, I'm thinking about, you know, your statewide parties. And then in, in Catalonia, I'm saying if you speak to pro-independence parties, obviously, you know, there are other parties within Catalonia as well. Um, you get two different, completely different visions of things. You know, Madrid will see it as um, this was, you know, a tactical move by Convergencia, the mainstream, uh, the once mainstream centre right nationalist party you know they were as involved in corruption scandals as your statewide parties in spain and mm -hmm. so they needed to rebrand themselves and move in a different direction and that's yeah. what your people in madrid will focus on they will say yeah. well it's part and parcel of them trying to create a new role for themselves in catalonia um, and and responding to demands from social you know social groups etc Whereas, and then if you're in Catalonia speaking to pro-independence politicians, they'll say it's nothing to do with that. You know, all of this started before. This is this has been a long time in the making. This move towards, and and it's true that within Convergencia, you're young. Even if the the older generations from Jordi Pujol's time weren't necessarily pro-independence, there were younger generations coming through before even the corruption scandals hit, who were pushing for more. I think the reality is, you know, there's there, there's new. It's a more nuanced picture in the middle. It's neither yeah. entirely one thing nor the other it's there it has been a combination of different incentives and drivers for the ways in which the pro-independence movement has emerged and it's it's neither exactly what you'll get from those who tell you one side of the yeah. argument or exactly the other side and in terms of whether the Catalans want um just want the Basque um, <laughs> financing model. I mean, I would actually look at it in a slightly different way in that, yes, that is often what comes up because obviously what everyone sees is, well, the Basques have more, more powers to collect their own taxes. No. As a wealthy region, the system as it's currently construed do 
does benefit them because they don't actually contribute as much through interregional redistribution as right. they would if they were the, under the other system. That doesn't mean to say that, it, that that's not actually necessarily a problem of fiscal autonomy. It just means that perhaps the mechanisms involved in, in deciding what their contribution is to the rest of Spain perhaps need, need, mm -hmm. uh, need thought about in a different way. It shouldn't, it shouldn't affect the ability to raise taxes. But of course, you know, we have this scenario where um, the Basques are only about, well, they're under 7% of Spain's GDP, um, whereas the Catalans, are, you know, the Catalan region is almost 20% of Spain's GDP. It's about right. 18, 19, I think, at the moment. Whereas over time, you know, it's been okay for Spain to have small regions like the Basque Country and Navarre, well, I mean, Navarre's only 1% to 2% of Spain's GDP, to have them with their own financing model, potentially not contributing that much necessarily to redistribution within Spain. If, if Spain was to, to have the Catalans under exactly the same system, you would, they would need to reconsider it in order to think about how to... Um, to make sure there was still there were still mechanisms for, for for redistribution. But I think if we think about those financing models, I think it's not really, to be honest, it's not really just the ability to collect taxes or to keep their own wealth that the Catalans say are looking for. What the Basques value most, the Basque nationalists value most about the, the economic agreement is the fact that they see it as a relationship between equals between them and the Spanish government. Yeah. It is the legislation, both sides have equal veto power. The Spanish government cannot change anything to do with the Basque um, economic agreement without the Basque approval. And wow. therefore, it's not like other powers where you can, uh, you know, other devolved powers where if there's a majority, an um, absolute majority people government in Madrid, they can decide actually to revoke some powers. Mm. That can't happen with the Basque economic right. agreement. Right. It's it, The legislation is, it, there's equal veto power on both sides. And the Basque nationalists, whenever I've interviewed them about it, they always see, say that they see that as a form of a model of kind of shared sovereignty, mm. co-sovereignty, yeah. that they want to see extended to, say, political relations, so that it's in political relations, they see themselves as subordinate to the Spanish government, mm. who has the overriding power. Um, and so I would say when we're saying the Catalans just want what the Basques have got, actually, what, what are we thinking about when we say they want what the Basques have got? Is it just the financial model or is it actually... Um, this kind of shared sovereignty, this kind yeah. of relationship more of equals, which actually is what the Basque want. I mean, your Basque nationalists, much as they've put in the aftermath of the financial crisis, they put their sort of territorial goals on the back burner. Your Basque nationalist party, um, they talk about wanting to extend that relationship of equals to wider political relations. I mean, obviously, yeah. it would be very difficult because, I mean, it, you know, we're talking about have, uh, I mean, there isn't really a model within Europe of states where you have a central government and a regional government having essentially a form of such a form of shared sovereignty that it's really a confederal type of arrangement. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking about even the the Basques essentially saying, well, we should have as much right to representation within the EU as the Spanish government does, because we should be treated as, you know, as being equals within Spain. Um, and obviously that's very complex. So I think yeah. really it's that it's that kind of sense of wanting a relationship mm -hmm. of of equals, as it were. Yeah, what what a brilliant answer to a to a, a very difficult question. Because I get asked that quite or I hear that statement so often and I often just close my eyes and pretend it never I never heard it. <laughs> and uh, but that's a brilliant answer. I'll definitely use that in future and I'll make sure I reference you. <laughs> um, with regards to changing priorities, um, I think the the part of your book that that was really interesting was your your ability to connect the regional with the national politics, um, and it sort of goes to left to right as and in a chronological order, but also. Um, in the book as well, which is, is great. But so in the start of the book, you, well, not sorry, the start of those chapters, you you talk about Podemos um, and how their sort of um, their sort of approach was quite fresh to seeing, you know, Spain as a nation of nations rather than the big Spain, um, which their you know their later competitors Vox would probably call it like the big Spain or sort of model. Um, but you saw the way you describe how 
uh, territorial politics sort of took a backseat to economic policies and approaches within Podemos. Uh, changed over time is quite interesting. So I just wondered if you'd like to share a bit of information about that and and how it how and how it um, sort of how it affects their relationship with the Pesloe at the moment as well. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mean, what I wanted to do in the book was look at these turbulent years from 2015 onwards in Spain, where suddenly you had a new, um, you, you didn't just have the PP and the PSOE winning most votes, you did have new challenger parties emerging. And what happened? What were their motivations as over over um, those years? And from 2015, the reality is we see quite a lot of shifts. I mean, obviously, Podemos emerged from 2014 onwards and first then won seats in the Spanish uh, Parliament 2015. Um, and and originally, you know, they emerged out of social movements, out of citizen um, movements with lots of goals and ideas of what they wanted to do. But then I remember, you know, um, interviewing Nacho Alvarez, who was head of their economic team. Um, and he, you know, the way he put it was, OK, so we had all these goals and priorities that emerged out of those social movements. That then we had to think what is achievable in terms of how can we translate that into those into legislatively feasible measures. Mm. And not only that, but they went from back in 2014 and 2015. I mean, the 2015 elections, when they got their, you know, their best result, they were hoping to overtake the PSOE. They obviously didn't manage that, but they still did pretty well. Mm. Um, but after that, their, their vote share started their, and their seats started declining. Uh -huh. And so their goal of actually being able to overtake, say, the PSOE and do and win, say, uh, uh, enough seats to be able to form a government and do what everything that they wanted to do, that as soon as they realized that wasn't feasible, they had to start to prioritize. What mm -hmm. can we prioritize to actually manage to achieve something? And especially, and that involved thinking about you know, they were going to need alliances with other parties. If they were going to get into power, it was going to be as the smaller partner in a, in a, in a relationship with the PSOE. Um, and they started to prioritize economic and social issues over territorial ones. And and I in the book, I analyzed the, the shift in discourse that we saw, and they went from talking about um, rep, key representatives of, of Podemos, went from talking about things like a referendum in Catalonia as being a red line to, you know, something that they wanted to make sure that they achieved because they support this, this idea of the right to decide. Mm -hmm. That ceased to be something that was presented as essential. And the, the priorities became um, working with with other parties to achieve agreements on economic and social issues. And those really became the priority issues. I mean, obviously, we're still at relatively early stages of the Podemos um, yeah. coalition. But I think what we've seen so far is precisely that. What have they tried to work on to agree? It, both last year and this year it has been budgetary matters, core economic and social policy issues. And the territorial matter, the issue of what to do with Catalonia has actually pretty much taken a back seat in comparison. Mm. And um, for but, now, at least, I should say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good, uh, good add-on. But um, the other thing that I found quite interesting was you talk about the the rise of Podemos being quite, um, you know, quite disjointed from other party like it's not this big statewide party like the PSOE was I mean it was sort of like lots of different um like uh you had El Mar in, in Galicia and um the um, different ones and I think there was Valencia they did quite well but Barcelona Andalusia and the Andalusia I think it, um you know they had all these different regional um ties and they they did they sort of fall apart because territorial politics took a back seat or did they just disintegrate because the party structure was changing um how did those ties sort of change a mixture of factors really i mean as you say originally when when podemos emerged um actually some of its local and regional partners you know because all, we're talking about parties that did emerge out of social movements and yeah. um, podemos realized well some of these these parties that have emerged say you know like the the communes in in barcelona mm -hmm. um that have emerged within their local and regional context they're a lot more likely to do better than that context than say us as a statewide party so they worked closely together under various alliances 
alliances um, often presenting themselves in conjunction with those local parties, say in local and regional lists for whichever election was taking place. And initially, um, uh, in the, you know, back in 2015, 2016, actually, um, say Podemos did best um, in the regions where it did end up working with some of these local local groups. And so it gave them almost a bigger voice. Um, it realized that that this was actually beneficial to it. But then from 2016 onwards, we started to see a bit of a shift, really. I think there was there were so many different parts to Podemos with all its with all its alliances yeah. that we're all with different decision making structures that this became more and more difficult to to control as it were um and there were a lot of you know there was a lot of infighting within different organizations i mean within podemos itself you had the the battle between erejon and iglesias over yeah. how to handle different issues that was also all happening at the level of local partners of podemos um and so ultimately um really podemos started to after not doing as well as it wanted in certain elections started to to shift a bit more and to focus more clearly on the left-wing social and economic policy issues and we can think about you know when it joined together say with izquierda unida that was all part of that new phase of podemos and really yes the social and economic issues became a priority and for a lot of the its um, local and regional partners, especially say in Catalonia, it had been very difficult for them actually that Podemos was essentially seen in those particularly, you know, where where territorial tensions were particularly high. Podemos was almost seen as sitting on the fence because it was neither one thing nor the, the other. It wasn't supporting Spanish unity, but then it wasn't actually, you know, supporting Catalan independence either. It was sort of seen as yeah. A bit in the most conflictive uh, political arenas, it was seen a bit too much as sitting on the fence. Um, oh. And so all of these issues, you know, Podemos was facing more and more difficulties compared to, you know, if we look back to the the, the joyous moments for the party in 2014, yeah. 2015, where it really thought it was going to, you know, overtake the PSOE. By the time it was in such a different scenario, you know, just a couple of years later, it had yeah. really had to prioritize what was most important for it to focus on and most feasible for it to achieve. Yeah, I mean, I was I was at a, uh, a bar Podemos supporting bar the light of the last election, I think, or the last two elections. And I had read about all these great celebrations and, you know, all this great um, atmosphere and things. Um, and the night was really more one of a, being a bit cynical. Oh, yeah, we beat Fidelanos sort of thing. It was a really yeah. different to what I'd and I'd experienced in, in, in the past as well. Um, but so it, the story of Podemos is like, been quite rapid they've sort of started out with all these like local um things and i suppose the story of the Pessoa is a, is a is a different one but a similar one on the same hand that you talk about in the book with regards to like regional barons i think that was quite interesting um how's that changed um with the leadership of pedro sanchez and how does well, it i think you know oh, sorry yeah, I mean, you know, when we think of how regional politics affects national politics, I mean, what I found looking at the PSOE was um, its attitude towards Spain's territorial question, what to do with Spain's territorial model, has actually remained remarkably consistent. Okay, there's been the odd shift in, in language here and there, depending on the political moment, but really they're still in favour of, of the system of autonomous communities, which they see as a federal-like system, and it's designed to ensure equal opportunities across the country, no matter which region you're from. Um, but they're in favour of a unitary state. You know, they do, it, they're not in favour of, of say self-determination of a certain of, of certain parts of the country um, and that has remained remarkably consistent but what we have seen the way in which regional politics how it shapes national politics has changed in the Pessoa's cases you had in the 80s the 90s the early 2000s you had regions in the south of Spain where the same the, the Pessoa had consistently governed, had never oh. lost the elections, and had often even been governed by the same person, say, for like 20 years or whatever. Oh. And because essentially the Pessoa had done better in regional elections in the south of Spain over time than even, it, you know, than say at central government level, where there was a bit more alternation between the Pessoa and the, and the PP, 
you almost had these regional barons who had so much power that they had huge influence on the direction of the party in Madrid, it, centrally, on what it did. And then, of course, along comes the financial crisis, and you have regions in the south like like Extremadura all of a sudden being governed by the PP for the first time ever. And then even in Andalusia, where um, I mean the PSOE held on there for a bit longer, but it was weakening its power. It was, it had, they'd gone from having absolute majorities to having mm. minority governments. Even there, we have seen, you know, now with the governance has changed and power is in the hands of the right. And so all of that, of course, meant that. There were shifts within the internal dynamics of the PSOE, who had power over the party. I mean, you had a lot of say, actually, the regional barons of the south, like Susana Diaz, who was in Andalusia, for, um, and, and others who had been in power for longer than her prior to her, um, a lot of them were, were part of the kind of the, the long-standing centrist elements of the PSOE. Uh -huh. They were very reluctant, say, to collaborate with Podemos. They were, they're the one, you know, quite reluctant, say, to collaborate with Bildu, the like, you know, parties that are seen as um, newcomers that are uh, of a different ilk to the, the Spanish yeah, left yeah. of the past. But of course, as they've lost power in their regions, they've lost um, they, so much control over what, say, Sanchez does or not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was a lot of rivalry, say, between Susana Diaz from Andalusia and Pedro Sanchez at one stage. There was rivalry over the, the leadership of the PSOE. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, because the PSOE lost those kind of strongholds in the South for a while, you know, even if only temporarily in some cases, it did lead to shifting dynamics within the party, which has meant Pedro Sanchez has ultimately, after he did win the internal fights for leadership of the party, he has been able to explore new options. I mean, there are some centrist members, some of the more centrist members of the PSOE, because obviously the PSOE spans a, a spectrum yeah, of left-wing yeah. voters. Yeah. Some of those will be feeling and, and have said as much that they are uncomfortable with budgetary agreements with the Catalan Republican left and Bildu rather than with, say, the, the center, the cent more center-right Ciudadanos. They'd have preferred a more central mm -hmm. alliance. So in, in, in a way, the fact that the PSOE lost power for a while in some core southern regions led to these different shifts within the party that then affect how the party behaves on national matters yeah. at the Spanish government level. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, and yeah, I mean, as you said about they would have preferred a, a coalition with Ciudadanos, that was that, you know, that sort of brings us to my next question, which is you make, uh, like, I think in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of hit on that, um, best to summarize it, that Ciudadanos sort of became a one-issue party, kind of, almost. Like, they started out as this sort of socially liberal, economic right at one point, um, party that could have, like, tried to gather quite a bit of the centre vote, disenfranchised voters from the PB's corruption and the Pasoli's corruption as well. Um, but that they sort of went on this very strange route that that ended in um, Alberto Rivera's um, re resignation, really, um, and and now the party's taken a different route. But could you tell us a bit about about how how territorial politics sort of really did affect the direction of Ciudadanos? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the the party first emerged, you know. Um, before, you know, several years before it, it gained seats in the Spanish parliament, it first emerged at Catalan level. I mean, it was founded by disillusioned socialists, essentially, who felt that the Catalan socialists had gone too much in favor of, say, Catalan regionalism, Cat alliances with Catalan nationalists. So it was founded by disillusioned um, center-left uh, uh, Catalans really to oppose Catalan nationalism but then they saw an opportunity to expand to the statewide context around 2014-2015 um, in light of the corruption that was affecting both the PSOE and the PP the need for democratic renewal so they did expand to to consider other issues beyond the Catalan question and yes they did emerge as you know a sort of um, I mean at the time back in 2014-2015 it seemed like they were going to position themselves as sort of the Spanish equivalent of the Liberal Democrats trying to right. be the sort of the, yeah. the the Liberal Economic Party but with progressive mm -hmm. social policies which actually for Spain is you would think there was a gap in the market because your yeah. Spanish 
P conservatives, the PP, have always been much more influenced by religion, even say that than say the conservatives in the UK. So that there's you'd think there was a gap in the market. Um, and that worked for a while. I mean, actually, if you look at what happened after 2015 elections, at one stage, the, the, the socialists decided they would try to form a government, even though it was going to be very difficult. And, you know, the first party they looked to was Theodor and they worked together on, on measures for a centrist, a centrist government with economic and social measures for a, a, a liberal centrist government, um, which, you know, they didn't get the support for that to go through. Um, but then, you know, the, the big issue was that the Catalan situation really blew up after that, around 2017, when you had your, your Catalans attempting a referendum, which obviously by a lot of Spanish statewide parties was seen as, um, was seen as illegal because it was, uh, the, the constitution doesn't allow for such a referendum. Uh -huh. um, and with all that happening in Catalonia, um, Ciudadanos started focusing more and more on that side of things, on the Catalan side of things. And they saw an opportunity because the PP was actually being criticized by a lot of right-wing voters. Uh -huh. You know, much as many in, in Catalonia might say that the PP was clamping down too hard. Actually, some of your right-wing voters in Spain and, and some of your Spanish unionists were saying the PP is not doing enough uh -huh. um, to, to clamp down on things. And Ciudadanos saw an opportunity to essentially try and um, be more um, clamped down harder on the Catalan situation than the PP was even doing. But it wasn't, you know, they saw an opportunity, but I think we also have to think about who was voting for them, because much as it might have seemed like there was an opportunity for this centrist, uh, socially liberal, but, um, but economically liberal as well party, um, and it did attract Theodoranos did attract your your sort of your young twenty, you know, um, say in their twenties and thirties, your kind of your middle class Catalans who were mm -hmm. looking for an economically liberal but social, socially progressive party. Um, but actually, the polls started to show, um, and a lot of surveys in Spain started to show that Theodoranos was attracting more voters from the right than from the left from the start. Um, and this is to do with the fact that your left-right divide in Spain is very entrenched socially. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the left-right divide, it's not just to do with economic issues. In fact, there are other issues that are arguably even more important than the economic ones. Studies have shown this. Um, they were attracting more right-wing voters from the start. So of course, when you had your party, the leaders of Ciudadanos thinking, what direction are we gonna take the party in? You did have, they were being presented with data saying that your big chance here is to take disillusioned voters from the PP. Mm. And so I think all of that helps to explain why they took this move to, to move further and further to the right as they focused or be did become almost a one-issue party focused on the Catalan situation. Yeah. I mean, obviously, ultimately, it backfired because you ended up with all your right-wing parties in Spain, the PP, Ciudadanos, and then Vox, which emerged as well, essentially all competing over the same issue and competing for the same voters yeah. for a while. Um, so it didn't work. But I think that's how we have to understand how they moved from what they were doing in 2015 to 2000 to what happened from say 2017 onwards and when i interviewed the uh, representatives of theodanos actually uh, you know that was basically they said to me the situation we were faced with in 2015 was not the fit situation we were faced with in 2017 in 2015 2016 we could sit down with the PSOE and talk about economic and social issues by 2017 we had to focus on catalonia and, and yeah. that had to be our priority it's just, I mean, it seems like they completely span. I mean, I, I one thing that I find quite interesting is, you know, Enchenique, who is the spokesperson for Podemos in the National Congress at the moment, was a member of Fidodanos at one point back when. Mm -hmm. And now they're in, you know, I read, I think it was in somewhere, um, I think you might have mentioned it in your book as well, that, you know, they were seen as more willing to govern with Vox than the PP were, who are, mm -hmm. you know, more traditionally seen more to the right. And I suppose that brings me to the question that um, I think is 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 uh, how how territorial politics has played a huge part in the um, the populist right party. So you know you go into quite a lot of detail about you know what constitutes a right wing populist party, um, and you know it was quite obvious that Vox sprang from the, um, you know, this, the Catalan crisis. Um, but 
it's also very interesting the thing that you make in the uh, you talk about in the book where you talk about um uh the the pp having some internal um problems you know against mariona rajoy the way he dealt with uh the catalan crisis and how how did that affect vox and how did vox respond to that okay well i mean I think, yeah, to understand Vox emerging, we have to go back a bit in time. I mean, for nobody was, you know, even a year prior to Vox's breakthrough um, in the Andalusian elections, but sort of 2018 time, um, even a year prior to that, people were still saying there's not going to be a far right party emerging in, in Spain. And the, the most obvious reasons people always put forward is, are, you know, the re relatively recent history of a right wing dictatorship, which makes people less likely to vote for, for the far right. And also the fact that Spain is, you know, despite some um, uh, signs of Euroscepticism emerged, it means, remains a much more enthusiastic country about yeah. the EU overall so we haven't seen the drivers of far right the typical drivers that you might have of far right parties yeah. elsewhere and um, but having said that um there was that the the PP had always embraced the full spectrum of right wing voters from your your centre center right through to the far right and for really that you know when we think of what left and right mean in spain it is not just about economic issues and um, there actually there are a lot of studies showing that over the 80s 90s early 2000s the pp and the basoy were, were were actually on pretty much on a similar page yeah. in terms of economic issues the uh -huh. differences are more to do with things like the role of religion in the state uh, that you know uh -huh. and things like the territorial question so uh -huh. where we saw huge increase in tensions between the left and the right emerging again was actually um Sort of around uh, 20, 2004 to 2008, your, your first Zapatero government, where the left, who came into power unexpectedly due to various issues, um, mm -hmm. decided we want to, you know, we need sort of a new, a new left, as it were. And they started to introduce more socially progressive legislation. They allowed for new regional autonomy statutes to, to revise and update Spain's territorial model. There were um, uh, laws brought in to, to give amnesty to illegal immigrants, all these sorts of things. And it was very much, they didn't change the economic model that the PP had introduced, mm -hmm. but they did introduce a lot more socially progressive legislation. Mm -hmm. And that led to a lot of conf increased confrontation between the left and the right, between the PSOE and the PP. Mm -hmm. And then after the Zapatero's governments, you had Rajoy coming back into power as coming into power with the PP coming back into power with Rajoy with an absolute majority government from 2011 to 2016. Now, Rajoy focused very much in a technocratic fashion on resolving the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And for some within his party, that was absolutely fine. But there were others who felt it wasn't enough. They felt after all those Zapatero years, they wanted a... They wanted a, a more of a right wing vision of Spain beyond just economic issues to be reinstated. Uh -huh. And, that you know, the PP with they felt that the PP with an absolute majority should have been able to do that. Now, Vox was founded by Santiago Oscar when he left the PP as a result of his disillusionment with all this. He left around um. 2012, 2013. But Vox didn't manage to gain ground until 2018, 2019. Uh -huh. So between... Vox actually being founded by a disillusioned PP by disillusioned PP members from the furthest right, and the party actually gaining traction. A number of years passed, and um, I found in something I, you know, I was reading by uh, a study by Denison and Mendes, um, uh, a couple of academics. You know, they talked very convincingly about how often a far right party to emerge. Um, there can be lots of controversial issues and people will be reluctant to vote for the party if it's seen as something so controversial, if they're mm -hmm. seen as bad people for voting. Yeah. But almost they need a reputational shield. And the Catalan issue, um, these authors argue, became like a reputational shield. It was seen as perfectly acceptable for people to say we should be a Spanish nation. The, Ca the Catalans shouldn't be allowed to vote on independence. Mm -hmm. And by capitalising on that issue, Vox finally managed to gain ground. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, having I, you know, I do think that without the Catalan issue, Vox wouldn't have managed to gain ground like it did. 
But it's never been a one issue party, even if that's the main issue that allowed it to gain ground. If you look at the way it's talked always in its manifestos and its speeches, it always links that issue Mm. to other parts of its agenda that it had always wanted to bring forward, but it never managed to gain seats on those other parts of the Mm. agenda. But somehow once it managed to get that foothold on with an issue that was like, seen as an acceptable issue mm. it managed to gain ground and that's mm. and that's really how I, I think you know they emerged so the catalan issue has been um fundamental for vox's emergence but it's not a one issue party mm. Mm. nice and 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 the pp have have suffered at that haven't they they've they've sort of gone left and right and back and forth and i suppose you know a couple of weeks ago with the motion of no confidence you know, Casado sort of standing up in Parliament, uh, basically denouncing um, the box is sort of, it's put them into a bit of a strange place now because the Catalan issue is sort of kind of quiet and Vox are kind of quiet as well. And I mean, Abascal, I think this week, um, being the week of the 7th, has gone over to the islands to try and sort of, you know, look at the migration issue, um, which is a bit more like, you know, Nigel Farage after Brexit has happened sort of area, you could probably say. Um, And one thing I wanted to ask your opinion on was, um, has the the recent region elections in Galicia and uh, the Basque country, have they surprised you in any way? And, um, you know, why do you think why do you think, I mean, the PP, it's a PP stronghold, the Galicia, but the BNG, I think, on the left was taken over from Podemos was a big thing. And uh, Bildu getting a lot of votes uh, in the Basque country. Could you see that happening? And, and what do you think of it? Yes, well, I think in these, um, I think both in Galicia and in the and in the Basque region, there has been a bit of, we have seen in the past years, you know, as voters getting used to new parties, a bit of shifts, say, between your left-wing regionalist nationalist parties, or, you know, which are the furthest left-wing ones and Podemos, say. Um, I think if we think of what happened in the Basque country, actually, even though Bildu gained... I think it was three seats they gained this time, actually, um, at the last election uh, in 2016, I think it was, they lost three seats. So actually what they've won this time is the same as what they got in the first elections back in 2012. So I actually think with Bildu, what's interesting is actually their presence since those first elections in which they participated, you know, post-ETA, et cetera, um, in 2012, their presence in the, okay, there's been the odd shift, but actually their presence in the Basque parliament has remained remarkably stable. There has been a bit of moving of votes between them and and Podemos. Um, I think at the last election, Podemos, the last regional election back in 2016, Podemos gained a few of those voters because it is, you know, their economic discourse is similar and it was very, you know, much in favour of a plurinational model. But then Uh perhaps some of those voters this time have shifted back to Bildu. Um, And similarly, you know, you've got similar dynamics in in Galicia between the the BNG and and Podemos and and similar local movements there. Um, So I think, you know, I think Podemos, what we are seeing is that that Podemos is, is struggling in, in regional yeah. contexts more than it was say, originally. I think we do have to understand that from the perspective of, you know, it did emerge back in 2014, 2015 with a very strong, we support a plurinational state that we, they even had, you know, a, a, appointed a specific minister to that role, a, you know, a, a specific member of the party to that role for, you know, the minister, I can't remember the exact title, but it was like the minister for a plurinational Spain yeah. or something like that. Um, and, you know, but then that discourse has waned. I mean, it's still there in the background, but over the years, it, it's not, as we've discussed, they've they've yeah. had to choose which issues to prioritise and they've prioritised more the social and economic issues. So I think that does make it difficult for them mm-hmm. to prove attractive to, say, your Bildu voter. Um, that you know they might have managed to attract some of those kinds of voters back in 2016 but i i or 2018 or whatever but i don't think they that it's as easy for them to attract those voters now mm. yeah and and uh and you know vox have broken into the basque country parliament as well that's quite a that was quite a surprise 
Yeah, I don't think they'll ever have a, I mean, I think it's highly unlikely, though, of course, we are in unprecedented times. <laughs> I think it is highly unlikely they will ever have a strong presence in the Basque country, no. just like Ciudadanos has always struggled. Because for the Basque, you know, even for the Basque PP, they are very pro the economic agreement. Yeah. Okay, the Basque PP has a different vision of the economic agreement to the Basque nationalists. They uh -huh. don't see it as a model of co-sovereignty, uh -huh. but they value the fiscal autonomy it brings. Uh -huh. And so for any party um, such as Ciudadanos or Vox to be against the economic agreement, you know, yes, they may manage to get the odd seat, but I think they will always struggle there more than, mm -hmm. than they might do elsewhere. Yeah. And I don't know if you're a person that likes to make predictions, but um, what would you say for listeners to look out for in the next couple of years under 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 the coalition? Say the coalition survives. Um, well, and after the coalition, I mean, there's three more years. Um, what things would you say for listeners to look out for in regards to regional politics? Well, I think, you know, to be honest, I think the most interesting thing is how I do continue to think that one of the most interesting things is how it's going to shape national politics, because what we've seen is we have got, you know, the, the coalition government that, that, you know, for its budget, it needs the support, it's needed the support of regionally based parties who are, and it's relied on pro-independence parties. And what we've seen in recent years is it's become more and more difficult for central governments to rely on that support sustainably. I mean, okay, Esquerra Republicana and Bildu have decided to support the budget this time around, but let's not forget that if we look back to a year or two ago, that, that you had your Catalan pro-independence parties supporting Sanchez's motion of no confidence against the PP government, but then one of those Catalan parties withdrew its support for the budget and therefore Sanchez didn't manage at that stage when he was in a minority government to approve a budget. So it, the support of these parties is not reliable if they don't then get whatever they're asking for in return. It's always been, as Bonnie Field, an, an American scholar has described it, a system of mutual backscratching. OK, we'll support you in Madrid if you, if you support us in our in our region with with whatever we, we you know we might be prioritizing or seeking at that time. So I think, you know, a big question is going forward is. Um, for Spain as a whole is, is this new alliance, you know, of left wing forces, both statewide and, and regional forces, going to be a sustainable one? Mm -hmm. um, and much of that depends actually on regional dynamics. You know, how are Unidas Podemos and the PSOE, how are they going to face the Basque and the Catalan situation? Because if they are going to have a stable alliance with Bildu and uh, Esquerra Republicana, they are going to have to think up more of an agenda for the Basque country in Catalonia. I can't believe that Bildu and, and Esquerra will lend their support for free for lengthy periods of time. Yeah. And I think the other issue to consider then is the question of what we are seeing is a more and more polarized Spain in left and right terms. I've talked um, at various stages in, in, in this interview about how in the 80s, 90s, the early 2000s, pre-financial crisis, um, your PSOE and your PP on economic matters, they were actually pretty similar. Um, yeah. They had quite liberal economic policies, but both also supported, say, the welfare state to a degree, um, you know, pre-financial crisis. It was kind of a coordinated model of capitalism that they were seeking to follow. Um, and your tensions between them, the left-right tensions were on other issues. We're now in a scenario where, because you have got had new challenger parties emerging with um, you know, more extreme views on both, on all issues, not just yeah. the territorial question, but the economic issue. We are now seeing, say, that the, the alliance that has emerged for the budget is very much a left-wing alliance, not just on, you know, that it's it's got more of the radical left policies or the anti-capitalist policies. I mean, to a degree, I mean, obviously it's, it's nothing like what Podemos was first saying back in 2014. Yeah. Um, they've moderated a lot, but nonetheless, this, the PSOE has currently made a clear choice to look more to the left rather than, say, looking to the likes of, say, Ciudadanos. That's mm. a clear choice that has been made. And so yeah. I think it will be very interesting to see, can this 
you know, does this last? Because we are essentially seeing a polarized Spain between left and right. But neither is going to manage to govern without the support of regionally based parties. And your left will have more options in that sense, because it is highly unlikely in the current scenario that you would have your Basque and Catalan nationalists supporting, uh, say, a PP government. I think that's become very, very difficult. Right. Um, so your left has more options, but even so, I think to for them to manage a long-term alliance with the likes of Bildu and, and the, the Catalan Republican left, what are going to be their policies towards the territorial question? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's gone a bit on the back burner as they've prioritized economic and social agreements. But will Bildu and the Republican left accept that longer term if this does become a stable alliance? So I think these are the kinds of issues to look for. And, you know, when we think about regional questions going forward, I mean, the Catalan situation is at a complete stalemate. Obviously, the Catalan parliament is still in this situation. There's, is it has at the past two Catalan elections, you've had pro-independence um, parties winning an absolute majority of seats combined amongst them. But there's more and more friction between those parties. And bear in mind that both times they've ended up um, winning an absolute majority of seats with less than 50% of the vote, which actually shows how divided Catalonia is on the pro-independence question. Um, and then in the Basque country, if we think about what's happening there, um, I mean, I think, it, you know, we're unlikely to see territorial attentions increase there in the immediate future because we're not likely to see the kind of alliance that we've seen between pro-independence forces in Catalonia, between whether they be left or right, they've allied together to prioritise things. We're unlikely to see the PN, the Basque Nationalist Party and Bildu forming such an alliance because they are loggerheads over so many issues. Right. Um, but, you know, what is going to happen there? You know, the PNV does still want uh, more of a kind of a relationship of equals. Are they going to keep territorial issues on the back burner or is this going to start to become more of a priority for them? So these are all things to to watch and see, really. There's a lot that could change and it's it's very difficult to predict. Spain has yeah. become very unpredictable. Yeah. Thank you very much, Caroline. That was uh, absolutely brilliant. Thank you for joining me. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Um, so... As I said, make sure you head to your local library or university library and, and request a, a copy of Caroline's book. Um, please, please remember to leave us a review on podcast platforms. Uh, if, if you do, then it helps the algorithm, apparently. Um, and more people can find us and more people can find great interviews like this, uh, talking about contemporary Spain without all of the terrible stereotypes attached. Um, and also, please remember to share um, and, and like this uh, podcast as well with your friends and family and everyone else. Okay, I will be back soon with another interview for you. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a great week. <laughs>